Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard Podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And this week we have another Spy Master interview. This week we are re-entering the Xander Zone. You think you had enough XXX this week? Well, you're getting some more. <laughs> that sounds very different than I think you intended. But yes, we are excited to be able to give some more coverage to the Vin Diesel 2002 film that... I don't know if people have revisited it a lot lately, but it's one that I think really looms large when people think back to the blockbusters of the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, you listened to our episode a couple of days ago. You heard our thoughts about it already, so we won't waste time with that. What I think we'll do, let's just talk about the guest that we have. Mm, yes, uh, screenwriter Rich Wilkes, who saw the movie right from concept to screen, which is a rarity in Hollywood. A lot of the times when we've talked to screenwriters, you know... Someone else took over at a certain point. There was rewrites along the way. Whereas in this case, we actually get to follow the journey of Xander Cage from, you know, the very kernel of the idea right to what wound up on the uh, silver screen. And let's not forget, Rich has also written a, a bunch of other films, including uh, Airheads from 1994, The Stone Age from the same year. You've also got stuff like Glory Days. And he also wrote the recent uh, Motley Crue biopic on Netflix, The Dirt, which I know Cam is excited to talk to him about. And of course, he also made the the documentary, which you can catch now, Punk Like Me, all about his journey of making up a fake band and taking it on the Warped Tour. But let's get to it, guys. Rich Wilkes on Triple X. Cam, roll the clip. And joining us now, the writer of this week's film, Triple X. It is none other than Rich Wilkes. Rich, thank you for joining us. Hey, Spy Hards Podcast. Thanks for having me, Cam. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, no. Our pleasure. Well, when we have people on the show, our first question before we get into Triple X, which is the, you know, the main topic of today's discussion, is we want to know how you became a screenwriter. So if you could take us back a little bit, how you first dipped your toe in the water. Um, I had always been writing short stories and things like that in, in school and school newspaper parodies and that sort of thing. Um, and then when I went to college, I took some creative writing classes and that's when I met some people who were from LA who had family that worked on TV shows like MASH. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that it's possible to work on a TV show. You know, I, I don't know what I thought, but to have somebody say his dad works on the show and knows Jamie Farr and Hawkeye and everything was a trip. And based on that, I realized, okay, this maybe this is something I could look into. So I was in the theater program. They didn't have a film program at the time, but I created my own screenwriting uh, minor and wrote a screenplay for my senior thesis. And that's, that's how I graduated. No, Since I'm then, I, I went to AFI after that in, in Hollywood, American Film Institute, to study screenwriting. Now, I'm really curious, when you look at your filmography, so much of it is based on you know, youth culture or music. How much of that was by design and how much of it was you know, your first film, The Stone Age, and then you, know, you, you do Airheads? And we're going to touch on some of your early work later on in the sure. episode. But how much of that was your own in, interest in terms of seeking projects versus studios looking at your work and going, clearly this is the guy for these types of films? Well, it, it, I was, I don't know, 27, no, 20, 25, I guess, when I started uh, working in Hollywood, uh, when I got my first script optioned and whatever. And so you show up at the studio looking the way you do at 25, 26, and, you know, 
uh, they go, okay, well, this guy must be, he's closer in age to the kids that are going to movies, so he must know what he's talking about. And so they tend to gravitate towards stuff that's youth oriented. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of a, 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 a you know, a big time fan of, of music. I've done written for zines and done band interviews and all that kind of dumb stuff. Uh, and I go to, you know, I went to hundreds of, of punk rock shows uh, over my life. And so I've always been drawn to that stuff. So whenever a, a project came up that any kind of music involved with it, that sort of falls into my into my wheelhouse. And that extends even to the to the spy movie. And the other thing I want to touch on is just when it comes to your genesis, and I want to track back on the music later on because I have a lot of airheads questions, so I can't <laughs> wait to tackle that. Um, is when people are generally learning their craft, they might look at other people's work to for inspiration. Is there anyone you look to as a screenwriter in, in past film history that inspired you? The, the guy I really, really like is Frank Pearson. Um, he wrote uh, uh, Dog Day Afternoon and uh, Cool Hand Luke. And from that era, uh, he was the guy that I admired the most. It was the first screenwriter that I actually paid attention to and said, wait a minute, that, this guy wrote that movie as well. Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so, so he would be my go-to guy. And in fact, Airheads is, you know, it's a version of uh, Dog Day Afternoon, except in a radio station. Mm. So it was heavily influenced by that. And there's a, a, a point in, in uh, Dog Day where, where Hoffman goes outside and he starts rallying up the crowd by screaming, Attica, Attica. And so I made it be uh, Rodney King, Rodney King. And then when I ran into, I ran into Frank uh, Pearson at this Writers Guild event, and I introduced myself, and I told him that I had that I'd done that, and he thought it was kind of amusing. I don't know if, if it was, uh, he'd never heard of the movie, and it maybe seemed like it was a ripoff to, to him, but I was very, very uh, happy to be able to tell him that I, that I had repurposed his Attica thing for uh, the Rodney King generation. So how, you know, later on down the road, what is the genesis of Triple X? Was this an assignment or was this something that you had pitched the studio? It, it was a pitch that I had. Um, the, the genesis of it was seeing the trailer for, I believe it was, uh, it was Mission Impossible 2 or 3 that they had Limp Biscuit do the, the theme song. And I saw that movie and I saw the trailer where, you know, the Tom Cruise is skating along behind a, a speeding motorcycle with Limp Biscuit playing, and he just doesn't fit the Limp Biscuit picture. So that got me thinking about, you know, uh, uh, why not a spy franchise that actually fits that music and is not either a guy in a tuxedo sipping martinis. I mean, this was the pitch when I went to the studio. It was really, it was a, I pitched one thing and they didn't like it. On the way out the door, I said, well, I got one other thing. It's called Triple X. Uh, it's a spy movie, you know, 007, he wears a, a tuxedo and drinks martinis. This guy snowboards and drinks beer. And they were like, okay, wait a minute, I get that. Come back in, let's, let's talk about it. And it was really, it came together as, as, you know, faster than anything I've ever experienced because it is such, in retrospect, it's such an obvious idea, but nobody had thought of it at the time. Uh, and so, so we jumped on it and, and got it made as quickly as possible, trying to bring that, that Gen X, X Games energy to James Bond, which if you'll recall at that time was, was kind of floundering with uh, uh, the Pierce, Bro I think it was Pierce Brosnan movies mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they, they, were not, they were not too hip back then until they, until they rebooted after, uh, it was after Bourne movies came out that James Bond had to have a hard look in the mirror and figure out how to, how to reinvent themselves. 
Now, what was your yeah. relationship with James Bond when you were putting this project together? Um, I, I grew grown up on James Bond. My, my, I have a, the trilogy of James Bonds for me that hit at the perfect time <clears throat> was uh, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, and For Your Eyes Only. Um, which, you know, they, it's a weird trilogy because the, the, the first one is this globetrotting adventure with Jaws. The second one, they try to do a little bit of a Star Wars thing and take it out of space. And then the third one, they go, you know what? Fuck all of that. We're going to come back down to basics and just have a cool story with a beautiful woman and some exotic locations. So those are the three that really hit me and I watched the most of. One of the initial ideas I had for Triple X before I decided to just make it triple X was his origin was going to be. And I, I don't think I've, yeah, I don't think I've mentioned this out loud before because I didn't want to get sued, but my initial idea was James Bond is running around fucking all of these women that work for bad guys. So wouldn't it make sense for him to have a bastard son somewhere on planet earth? And why couldn't this be that guy? So he's the bastard son of James Bond who grows up in a completely different lifestyle but by the end of it wants to you know meet this guy this james bond and the, the idea would be that that you're the james bond that you're putting in this movie would actually be kind of a bad guy who's left all of these uh, these kids scattered all over the world without a father uh and so he uh he teaches the, the old man a lesson but uh that that was not something that anybody was willing to do even i saw that you're not going to horn in on the james bond franchise so i just made him his own guy and went with it that way. I, I could see Eon knocking at your door very early on with a cease and desist, even if you came up with the idea out loud at that point. So yeah, that makes total sense. Yes. Um, well, one of the things that uh, sort of stood out to me is the whole idea of an American James Bond. There's been attempts at the American spy before. We've had like the Matt Helms in the 60s, uh, the Derek Flints, all 60s really. They hadn't really tried it properly again. And you were one of the first... I think you are the first one in the sort of the 90s, 2000s to really give us a fully fledged spy franchise that's American in that sense. And what went into coming up with an American spy that's you know, brash, kid friendly, in your face? You know, how did you come up with that character? Well, looking back on the time period, this this was whole thing was conceived of right after 9-11. And at that time, we had a collective fantasy of like, you know, fuck, we America's just been stepped on and we want to feel like we're safe and protected and we got a guy on our side. You know, nowadays we have Captain America and the Avengers, but back then that was really what it was. The appeal of, of an American guy being able to solve some fucking problems and find these terrorists and kick their ass. Um, so that was a really large part of, of the draw for me. And I think probably some of the appeal to the movie. I, I, I guess Bond also is doing, he's the American thing, but the bad guys are really more Americans ultimately in those movies. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And, you know, Vin Diesel is obviously the star of this movie and became very iconic coming off of Fast and the Furious. I'm curious, was that your original vision of who Triple X would be or how much changed with the casting of Vin Diesel? Uh, he was the, he's the ultimate, he was the perfect model. The, the, the vision for me was, uh, was uh, Fred Durst from, from uh, Limp Bizkit. He was a, a, a rock star who's bald for one and he's got tattoos. And if you were in Motley Crue in the eighties and you were bald, you were not gonna go very far. So it was kind of a cool new look. It was new metal. Uh, uh, so why not 
stick those two together. So, you know, I don't think uh, Fred Durst uh, kicking ass is going <laughs> to, he's kind of a, a small guy, but you take a guy like Vin Diesel who has some of the same characteristics uh, and he's very, very intimidating. And right when I finished writing it is when the trailer came out for Fast and the Furious. And it was like, oh shit, this guy is absolutely perfect. We got to get him. And we got him and the director came straight over from Fast to work on, on this one. One of the things I, I noted in my research is sort of the very quick turnaround of this film from conception to filming to being on the screens. I think it's like a year and a half all told. Is uh, yeah, at the most. Yeah, I think I sold it. I sold the pitch in March, had a script by May. We got the director attached and been attached that summer. By November, we were shooting. By August, it was in theaters. So, yeah. A little, little less than eight, less than eighteen months, which is incredible because I've had, I, I did a Motley Crue biopic, The Dirt, that took seventeen years to get made. So I've seen, I've seen both extremes. <laughs> but um, one of the things I had about sort of the conception before we maybe get into the nitty gritty of the spy story is the pitch that you went in. Obviously, you said you turned around and gave him that quick sort of elevator pitch. When you turned back and you went into that boardroom. And the pitch you told the executives, what was the difference between that and what we saw on the screen? Well, initially what I wanted to do was not do an origin picture. I wanted to do like, this is the fourth one in the franchise. So it's not where did this guy come from, but we're jumping right in, you know, you, you guys just did the Charlie's Angels one. And you remember how you just start on that airplane and you're in the movie and it's going, that's mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. But uh, the studio wanted to do the, the origin story instead. So we cooked up this idea where you're going to kill off a James Bond type guy in a tuxedo <clears throat> and tell the story that way. Um, mine initially was going to be a bit more of a, of a satire. It was going to be a bit more in the Austin Powers world, making fun of this genre because it's like, you know, he's an X Games champion. You're going to make him a fucking spy. It's a goofy premise but the appeal to the studio and to the producer was this could be like lethal weapon so let's make it a serious sort of kick-ass movie rather than you know the goofy uh i i guess i'm going even back farther to a to a movie like uh, uh adventures of buckaroo bonsai you know it, it that kind of or, or uh, uh big trouble in little china that was kind of the thing i was thinking of tone wise uh but those movies were not ever very popular even in their <laughs> own day so it went for something a little more straightforward. Yeah, I guess producers aren't really chasing cult fandom later mm -hmm. down the road. Um, you know, you have the team from Fast and Furious coming onto this movie with Rob Cohen, the director, and Neil Moritz, the producer, and of course, Vin Diesel, the star. Was there any pressure, um, you know, in terms of like rewrites or anything to make it closer to what sort of the Fast and Furious experience was? No, not at all. Um, I wrote it before I saw the movie, and it pretty much stayed that way. The only kind of big changes we had to make were, um, you know, I, I didn't really realize this, but when you're gonna shoot an action movie on X date and you have a, uh, a, a motorcycle chase in the climax of the movie happening in Prague, and then you realize by the time the camera crew is in Prague, it's gonna be the middle of winter. We can no longer have a motorcycle chase there. That's gotta to move to the first act. And now you're making these gigantic changes just because of where you're going to be shooting and when. So that became a little tricky, but it was nothing, uh, nothing was changed to sort of make it more or less like Fast and the Furious. 
It's, you know, frankly, nobody knew Fast and the Furious was obviously going to be going on 15, 20 years later. It, yeah. was, a, it was a hit movie at the time, but uh, yeah, God, no. So Triple uh, X wasn't necessarily going to go to space in part four or something at that point. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> well, you never know now. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of sort of uh, casting, we mentioned obviously Vin Diesel, but you've got, you know, Asia Argento coming onto the pick, Samuel Jackson. Some some big old names here. Did you yeah. have any part in the casting of any of these people? No, I mean the the I got to be along for the ride. I got to go and meet a few people uh, uh, that they were considering for the bad guy and whatnot. But with somebody like you know the director might go, hey, what do you think of Sam Jackson? Be like, yeah, I love Samuel L. Jackson. Why wouldn't I? Uh, but no, the, uh, generally the writer nobody nobody thinks to ask what they think of who's playing what. Ooh. That is something we've seen over the over our, our previous interviews. Sometimes they, the writers come along and help out the whole way through. Sometimes they're just, thanks for the script. See you later. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, the casting of Sam Jackson is really interesting in comparison to like an M from the original Bond series. And I'm wondering, you know, when you're writing it, how much you're looking to subvert tropes versus which ones you want to keep in terms of a Bond formula. How do you kind of choose which way to go to create something that feels fresh, but at the same time, spy fans can watch and get that sort of Bond excitement from? Yeah, um, that's a good, it's a good point. Older friends of mine had watched it, really liked it because it related to the Bond franchise. I was inspired by things like uh, Escape from New York, where you have Lee Van Cleef being the M figure who puts an explosive in his neck. And it's like, you're gonna do this or fucking die. And that's more what I saw with, uh, with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, with the caveat that our guy could be redeemed at the end and become uh, a hero. Um, so it was sort of my, my being influenced by movies like that, the John Carpenters and the uh, uh, whatever else, blending that with a spy movie and then bringing in the, the, the musical references and opening with Rammstein and, you know, uh, dialogue about the vandals and things like that. Um, it was a, a conscious blending of those two kind of things, a traditional spy movie and something a little more uh, culty. Right. Was Rammstein your idea? It actually was not. No. Uh, I don't know how they, they came about. I wasn't there when they shot that, but that was pretty awesome. It was. Yeah. I do want to get into the, the music in a second because it, I was 15 when this film came out and I felt like you were you were targeting me precisely with the new metal <laughs> stuff there. I, I felt very seen at this moment when I saw the trailer. I was like, okay, okay. You and you and MI2, I think those are my two favorite spy films of those couple of years. That was uh, nice. my soundtrack and my kind of movie. So hey ho. But um I, I rewatched this film today. And one of the things that stood out to me, I hadn't noticed before, and we have alluded to it, I think you mentioned it as well, Rich, is the, the killing of James Bond at the start. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I imagine to people who were maybe a tiny bit older at the time seeing the film, they would have got that. But uh, was yeah. that like a, did you make that an overt thing that people were supposed to see or, or am I just an idiot? What way was that planned? It, it was a, well, the fact that he has a tuxedo on is supposed to clue you in. Initially, it was supposed to be it was written as a much bigger action sequence that would have a car chase and what have you. And in our fantasy, it was let's get, you know, one of the guys who actually played James Bond to play this character and then we can kill him off on page four and people will go, oh, fuck, they just killed off James Bond. Now who's going to take his place? Uh, so we, you know, I don't think anybody was going to put their legacy on the line and get blown up in, a, in the beginning of a Vin Diesel movie. 
but the idea was still there and it had to be done as, as cheaply as possible. No car chase, no nothing. He slides down a, a zip line, winds up getting shot in the concert. Um, but it was just the, the notion of him being a fish. James Bond is always able to blend right in wherever he goes because he's going to the to the horse races or, you know, fancy polo match or whatever. And now he's walking into a place where he's going to stick out like a sore thumb in his stupid tuxedo. And that's why we need another guy to take over. I'm curious, you know, as your lead character, did Vin Diesel have any input on the character? You know, they, uh, one of the things that was added was at the beginning, um, he, he's sort of this Robin Hood figure who steals a, a senator's car and drives it off a bridge to make some kind of, you know, online statement about what this guy uh, being a hypocrite and whatever. And that was something that, that Rob and, uh, and, uh, and Vin had come up with together, wanting to give him sort of a vigilante justice side at the beginning when I had him, I had envisioned him more as just a, a lost loser type, more of like a, you know, a biker without a biker gang who had a, a shitty apartment and, you know, nobody in his life, uh, you know, a three strikes kind of, a two strikes kind of guy. So they added that element in. Um, and what it did was it also brought in Tony Hawk and Matt Hoffman and all of those people that help him out at the beginning, which helps tie you into the whole X games and having a, a skate ramp and as an apartment. My version of his apartment was there's, you know, it's a shithole with nobody there. And that's why he's happy to go on an adventure because his life is so fucking pathetic. And in this version, he was sort of this cult hero. And that was something that the, those two had, had cooked up. I totally get that, though, because that actually makes more sense for his, his drive to join the team. If he has absolutely nothing, then sure, I can give that up. But yeah, I, you, you could sort of question why he would do it when he's got, you know, who, who's the lady that works with him? I forget her name now. Uh, oh, Eve. oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eve's working there. You, yeah. you wouldn't leave home, would you? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, but I, I suppose I'll, I'll take us on to the music because that's one of the important parts for me. And looking at your filmography, Music obviously played a huge part, and of course the documentaries there as well. Did you have any sort of input on the music on this film particularly? Just, I, I put in the, the lyrics to the Vandal song and had that be one of the key things that gets him in with the bad guys. That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite bands uh, that I grew up with. Other than that, no, that's not, again, that's not something generally people ask the, the writer their opinion on. Uh, I could throw out ideas and the director would go, okay, yeah, cool. We'll think about it and then <laughs> do whatever they wanted to do. But they did do a double, as I recall, it was a double soundtrack. One was mm -hmm. a heavy metal and one was a, a rap, a double, double disc thing. Yeah. I had them. I did have them. Right. Yeah. Um, I do too somewhere. Yeah. And um, just with the music now, obviously your documentary and you went on the walk tour, you were in a punk band. Um, would you have chosen new metal for your film? You know, I had mentioned a lot about uh, about uh, Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst. It's not because I was a, a Limp Biscuit stan. It's because it had the energy of the youth culture that was in the zeitgeist at the time. That's not my musical preference to have, you know, stained and POD, puddle of what all of those kind of bands were not really for me. Um, uh, so I would have picked different stuff. It, it was up to me, but, but the bands that I like don't sell as many records as the ones they put on the soundtrack. So they're probably a lot smarter than I am. 
Now, when you're looking at tapping into, you know, youth culture for this film and what's going on with X Games, I'm just curious what kind of research you are doing to help make this world feel, feel authentic to the people who are fans of these things and would be attending this movie. I was into that world just as a, as a fan. Um, I grew up in San Diego. I had, you know, a friend who, who was in the Powell Peralta videos in the 80s, a kid I went to high school with, uh, you know, Search for Animal Chin and all of that. And I'd always been a fan of those movies, Bones Brigade. Um, so I just went back into that world and, and watched all the new versions of those things, Big Brother and all of that. Um, and then through the course of making the movie, I got to do some fun stuff on, on the, uh, the military side. I got to go to Navy SEALs training base down in San Diego to see what they were, you know, putting guys through. Because that was the initial intention was that the triple X guys, Xander Cage would be thrown into a Navy SEALs type training where he had to come through it within, you know, a couple of uh, uh, days or something. So I went to see what they do to these guys. And it was really, really cool. They also had me on a, a shooting range firing AK-47s and, and MP5s. And uh, that was amazing. Uh, and then just on the other stuff, it was, I go to, I would go to warp tour, I go to concerts, I do all that stuff anyway. So it really wasn't that, it, it wasn't foreign to me, <laughs> that world at the time. Right. Well, I have a question for, for you guys. Oh, no, go, on. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Well, this was, this movie was 20 years ago. And I, I, you know, looking back on it from this distance, I know you guys, you know, have your favorites and you have, you know, I heard in the, the, the latest Charlie's Angels podcast, action sequence that you didn't think worked or didn't make sense. Looking back on this movie 20 years later and considering that I'm not going to have an ego about it because, you know, it was, a, it was a different person at the time and what's done is done and whatever. Yeah. What do you think stuck out to you as something that worked and something that did not work at all? Do you want to go first, Scott? Yeah, I can take that one first. I think for me, I like to try and take films as of when they came out. We, we, we cover films going all the way back to the 30s. So I have to sort of compartmentalize my personal sure. feelings and just view it as a piece of work at the time. So I can see people watching it now and being like, why am I listening to Drowning Pool? Why is, <laughs> why is Ramstein here? And I can see them being a bit bristly at that, especially if like 18 year olds coming at this now listening to Billie Eilish and just you know, wanting to plug their ears. Yeah, it's like listening to grunge music when you grew up listening to music in the 80s. It's a complete variation of what you were listening to. Um, but that all works for me personally. So it's, it's all personal taste. I think the bit that doesn't work for me, if I'm being critical, is maybe the villain. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily feel the threat from him, there's no, I feel like Vin's got it under control the whole time, which Bond also has the same thing. You don't really ever feel like Bond's on the back foot. There's maybe the Daniel Craig's later on, but especially the early sort of Roger Moore ones, he's always just quipping and raising his eyebrow. So if that's what you were going for, then it was a success. But I, for me, the villain was probably the thing I probably bumped on. Uh, yeah, I kind of actually agree with the villain part. That actually jumped out to me as well. Um, yeah, it's one thing, you know, I think a lot of people could look at it and say, well, it's very clearly 2002, a movie. But like, you can look at a lot of the Bond movies and they are very specifically of their time. So I don't take that mm -hmm. into any sort of consideration. It was very much a time and place and it reflects that, I think, really well. Um, 
For me, like, I think, first of all, I want to say, like, the final action scene on the boat, uh, you know, the, the missile boat was, I thought, really effective and still holds up very much tension wise. I think it's a really well put together dramatic sequence. And I want to ask you about the action in a second. But um, in terms of a lot of the other, you know, I shouldn't say a lot of the other, but like some of the other visuals, the locations and things like that, I wish they popped a little more. That's something I see a lot in the Bond movies, you know, when you go to a location it's instantly like that postcard. It just really sticks with you as a visual. Whereas here, I felt like maybe it was a little more subdued than I would have liked, but those are the main things. I mean, for me, you know, I also sort of agreed with the villain, but maybe we'll just ask you about that. You know, what were you looking to do with the villain? Well, it, it, two things to address. One about the locations and two about the villain. The villain first, the, the big problem that happened was the villain was supposed to be on, on the Ahab boat to fist fight with Xander until the last second in this climactic battle. But because of the way the thing was constructed and how they were shooting it in the winter in Prague, they could not have an extended fight on that thing racing through the city. So they had to do the thing where Vin Diesel shoots the engine on his boat, the bad guy's boat blows up. And it's really kind of a letdown because you don't get that toe to toe, fuck you moment. So that was kind of a, a, a bummer. Uh, the other part was the, the part of the notion was James Bond takes you into the most beautiful parts of town. And one of the things that didn't quite make it in there was when he's driving to, you know, he's being picked up by these two guys named Ivan and been taken to his hotel. It wouldn't have worked visually, but it was scripted that they drive by the, the four seasons and he's like, oh, we're not. And then they drive by, you know, the two seasons. Oh, no, we're not staying there. And then they show up at the shithole and it's like, OK. So we're not supposed to see the glamorous side of Prague because this guy is seeing the shitty side. Um, that was the, the part of the idea. Uh, I guess it goes against it by the end when he gets to Bora Bora and you get those beautiful hmm. shots. But uh, yeah, so it, some things worked and some things didn't. Having the bad guy be, uh, have him go toe to toe with that guy would have been a lot, uh, a better use of the character than we got away with. And there had been another character that was in there that I wound up turning into the Asya Argento character. Initially, the Ahab device, which is that is it's, it's a solar powered uh, submarine, submersible. It was, it was called Ahab because it was designed by this scientist woman to follow whales. It was supposed to track the migration pattern of whales. And then the bad guy had gotten a hold of this thing, forced her to modify it and turn it into this thing that he was going to use. And it was going to be, you know, uh, launching these things from out in the ocean or whatever. Well, we had to change it for various reasons and make this slow moving submarine be a fast moving thing on skis, but it's still called Ahab because we forgot to change it. And then the girl, the scientist became Aja Argenta. Uh, Argento, who had more of a badass role, being being uh, she was a, a KGB type character, so that probably also contributed because in the older version, I think maybe you got more of a sense of the bad guy being evil by the way he had fucked over the scientists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. I, I actually will. Um, I'll jump in a second there, Cam, because I actually yeah. want to take umbrage with something you said, Cam, and mm. I will actually defend the film a wee bit. Okay. Because I don't think it needed to have that travel log feel when he's going around Czech yeah. Republic. The whole idea is he's going to underground clubs. It's a seedy underbelly of the city. You're not supposed to see the nice bits. He's living underground in the in the in the shadows. Right. And that's why I, I took from that personally. 
Scott's, yeah. I think, can we just mute Cam? Scott, I think you've got this. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it really comes down on more of an atmosphere feel where like the atmosphere didn't really work for me as much, so much as the, you know, the visual picture of the actual location. Sorry, sorry, Rich, can you hear that buzzing? That's a... <laughs> Fair. <laughs> there is a, you know, that was part of the wish fulfillment of the James Bond movies, particularly Spy Who Loved Me, because, you know, they're in Rio, they're in Egypt. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I'm, you know, seeing all these fantastic sights. And those movies, if you go back and look at Spy Who Loved Me in particular, the sequences are so short. He chases this big guy up to the roof and then he's holding him by the necktie. Where do I find him? At the pyramids. He falls off the building and boom, that's it. It's like, two lines of dialogue and a fist fight and you jump to the next bit. Really, really great, but they really, really went out of their way to make it a travel log because you didn't have access to going see all this shit like you can now online. That was part of the appeal of those movies. What does it look like in Thailand? I don't know, James Bond's gonna show me. Hmm. Well, I'm curious, you know, you referenced Spy Who Loved Me. I just have to ask, was Triple X named after Agent Triple X from the Spy Who Loved Me? No, that was thing that, it, it, hmm. I, it was maybe it was subconscious. There was no way I would call the Vin Diesel character the, the you know the sexy spy name from Spy Who Loved Me. But what's the woman's name? Uh, uh, not Barbara Bach. Barbara Bach. Yeah, Ringo yeah. Starr's wife. Uh, no way I would have given Vin Diesel that name. But I did wind up watching the movie again after we had done Triple X, and I went, "Oh shit!" I didn't realize that that, that either it sunk into my head and I and I took it accidentally or or whatever. But I think it works better in my movie than in theirs, because having her be Agent Triple X in 1977 or whatever it is, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. I will say it's, it's very hard. Wink. Yeah, it's a wink. But I also have yeah. to say it's very hard to Google the name of this movie now. <laughs> yes, that was that part of this. Yeah, I thought I thought that was really funny when uh, I named the movie. Uh, that was really appealing to me, the subversive nature of having kids want to go and type in the, the trailer and what would come up. And I don't, now that I have kids, I don't know if that's particularly <laughs> as funny as I thought it was. That's quite punk rock of you, to be fair. <laughs> um, I, I had like one question left for, for Triple X myself, and that was, and you, you maybe touched on it earlier when you said that they added the, the sorry, Vin added in the scene about the the car dive off the bridge with the, the congressman. Mm -hmm. it, but in this case with Triple X, this is one of the rare occasions where you have written the screenplay and it's not been touched by anyone else. And from the films we've generally covered, this had two, three, four, a cavalcade of writers. And so is there anything else that was added to the film that wasn't necessarily your creation? Oh, boy. Um... If there's, if there's a few, then we'd have to dig into it, but no, it stands out. I think, we've, I think we've hit on them. It was mostly that thing, um, which, which was an invention that I didn't see coming, the desire mm -hmm. to make, make Vin have that sort of backstory. There's a scene that got cut. I think it was available as a, as a bonus sequence, but it sort of underpinned the, the heroic journey when he's on the plane to fly to Europe to do his thing. Again, you never really see James Bond flying someplace. You just see an aerial shot of whatever. And so our guy, you know, the camera starts up in first class and it goes all the way back and back by the toilet is where Xander is sitting. And he's got a little laptop that's got the instructions for the mission. And a kid is waiting to use the bathroom and says, oh, what's that video game you're playing? And, you know, Vin makes up this little story uh, about the video game, what he's really talking about are bad guys in the movie 
And then the kid says something to the effect of, well, of course, you know, you're going to finish that and kill the bad guy. Oh, yeah. Why is that? Well, because you're the hero. And that sort of plants into his head. Wait, I'm supposed to be the fucking hero in this thing. Uh, and unfortunately, the shot didn't work. The sequence didn't work. And then not only did it not work, you didn't need it. <laughs> uh, it looked good on the page because it allowed people to go, OK, you're going for some kind of heroic arc here for the character. And this is a nice message or whatever. It doesn't really wind up needing it. But it was kind of it was kind of interesting for a, for a minute. Well, they added in that scene, uh, as you said, with the 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 mission with um, Danny Trejo. That was a was that your creation or was that? Uh, yeah, no, that was that was mine. Uh, we decided early on to forget the Navy SEALs thing and just do mm. something where it's like, boom, you're kidnapped, you're thrown into this situation, you're thrown into that situation. And the idea was that it started with. It was more like Hunger Games. He wakes up, there's a dozen guys and they're all on an an airplane the door opens it's the middle of the night they're given a parachute and thrown out the door without even you know they just have the parachute in their arms so as he's plummeting to earth he has to struggle to get the parachute on before he dies and four of the guys four of the ten guys get killed right there and then mm -hmm. they wind up here and then da, 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 and he's the one guy who's left alive that wound up taking the entire first act and it was a little much so we just did the truncated version but you needed to have some real danger with the Danny Trejo. It couldn't all be simulations and, and what have you. So that whole sequence was cooked up because we couldn't do the motorcycle sequence at the end. That sequence became much bigger with the helicopter attack and the motorcycle ride through the drug farm uh, as a result of the location stuff. So some of the stuff changes, yeah, not for any other reason than, than the practicalities of shooting the damn thing. Well, it worked out well. The uh, the jump over the barn is probably one of the better stunts in the film. The explosion and stuff, great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was there that night, and I don't know how those guys do it, but I was, I don't know, fifty yards away next to the camera, and when it blows up, you feel the shockwave and the heat on your skin from that distance. And uh, the kid on the motorcycle was inches away from this thing and did not flinch. It was unbelievable. One of the kids, uh, Twitch, had uh, launched himself so high during one of the stunts that he hit his head on the helicopter above him mm. and, and screwed up his neck and had to drop out of the, the movie. So they had these guys from the metal militia that were just, they were the bomb. Well, um, when you were putting together, you know, your screenplay, how much in terms of the action were you mapping out? Because, I mean... You look at the James Bond movies, the stunts they're doing are already incredible. You reference Moonraker. The whole opening of Moonraker is unbelievable, the whole skydive sequence. What are you thinking when you're writing your screenplay and you're thinking, we want this to be more extreme? How do you out extreme Bond on the page in a way that's going to be, you know, conceivable to, you know, the director or the producers you're handing it to where they go, yeah, we can do this? Okay. When it winds up doing something like the, the helicopter thing, because that was happening so fast and had to be shot first. And the script had to be written at the same time. I was actually meeting with uh, the director when he was meeting with all of the stunt guys. And we would have a list of which were the, you know, you need an excuse for this guy to be able to, to, to have to come from this building and make it all the way around to rescue this other character that he's trying to save the life of. And that's gonna require him to, to jump all over the place. So it does become a bit of a, uh, it's a mechanical thing rather than coming from character at a certain point. 
You know what a bike can do. How do we get the guy to do that plot-wise and have it be worthwhile? Um, the one bit that I thought was, was that sold the X Games version of it was at a certain point where there's a sniper on the roof and he blinds the sniper with a silver tray and then uses the tray to do a rail slide down a, a staircase. And that to me was the kind of thing that could only be done in an X Games world. So I was in favor of those kind of things. And we did it with the, the you know, the, him jumping out of the plane with the snowboard on his feet to, to, to try to hit the top of the mountain and, and all that kind of thing. But a lot of it comes down to, again, the practicalities. We have this many helicopters. We have this many nights to shoot it. We need to establish this and get to there. And then Sam Jackson is showing up. So it, it's a fluid thing. It's not in this particular situation because it happened so fast. I didn't have the luxury of blocking out all kinds of incredible action uh, on my own. Whatever I wrote had to change for the practicalities. Um, on other things that I work on, you, the problem with, with blocking out the action is it's boring to read, you know? Mm -hmm. So I try to do as little of it as possible and only highlight the, the really interesting stuff, you know, because there's going to be seven shots of the cars doing this and you don't want to, exterior highway they zip back and forth exterior bridge they zip back and forth some more you know you have to figure some way to make that stuff uh i guess you're writing it more for the reader than you are for the production mm. i suppose i actually want to throw that question you threw at us and you're the first person to throw a question at us so i i will i'll bear that in mind i want to throw the question sure. back at you because you you know you said you're a fan of of the Roger Moores, the classic Bond films in that sense, you're making a spy film. This is a, a boyhood dream, I would, I would imagine, at some level. What is potentially one thing that, looking back, you would have changed and one thing you're really proud of about the film? Um, what I would change, it, it was much more, I, when I was making writing it, I was much more concerned about the plot than I was about the character. And it's very difficult to do both things. And John August was talking about the, the, the things they had to service on, on Charlie's Angels. Every girl had a relationship. And the, so we did have the mechanics of this, you know, the world is in danger, this bad guy and yada, yada, yada. All of those pieces have to fit together, but I never really fully explored the, the heroic arc of this character. I think there could have been more done with it because Vin is so good at portraying this badass with a heart of gold that, that there, there was a smarter way that I could have written it, I think, to, to bring that out. Um, as far as the stuff I like, I think, you know, the, the action stuff, my proudest moment, I guess, is there's a sequence where there's a, a, a firefight breaks out and he's with uh, Asia Argento and she gives him a gun and he doesn't know how to use it. So she has to show him how to turn off the, the safety. And to me, that was, if there was more of that, because he is an amateur. He doesn't know how to do all this cool shit. He has to improvise. He didn't go to spy school. So that's the kind of stuff that I, that I like when we hit those moments. And that's what would have helped if I was able to do more with it. Now, um, the Triple X franchise went through a very strange yes, <laughs> continuation. Yes, yeah, the Yeah, the sequels. Was there ever any discussions about you coming back for you know, the Ice Cube film or the return of Vin Diesel? All right, so here's the story. Um, I'm working with the director on the sequel to Triple X. Uh, I finished the entire script. I've been working with him for months, kicking around ideas. I turned it on a Friday, and the person that I'm 
sending it to the secretary, the assistant, whatever, he goes, oh, cool, because we got the other script on Tuesday. And I say, what other script? And it turns out that they had hired another writer to write Triple X2 at the same time that they'd hired me to write Triple X2, and they had never told me. So we were both working with the director on our own, brainstorming this thing. And then when it came to it, they picked, I don't remember the sequence of events because Vin dropped out, the director dropped out, and then they picked you know, the, the script to go with, which was not mine. And then they decided to go with, with Ice Cube. So I had nothing to do with any of that. And it was, it was upsetting to me that they did not tell me there was another writer. That's not cool, you know, mm -hmm. especially since I invented this stupid franchise. And it turned into this big thing. And they, they got mad at me because I was mad at them. And on the second movie, I don't get a credit. Uh, you're supposed to get a character created by. Yeah. They have to give it to you. No, they don't have to give it to you, as I found out, because they put mm -hmm. it in the end crawl in between catering and truck driving. It says characters <laughs> created by. And so I called up the writers. Guild. I was like, what the fuck is this? Isn't it supposed to be like Bob Kane's Batman? I'm like, yeah, it's really they don't really have to do it that way. I'm like, well, that's why did they have to fucking diss me by putting me next to the donut people? This is fucked up. So on the third one, which I also had nothing to do with, I did get that at the beginning. But I had written two other unproduced triple X movies between them. We had tried to do one in like 09 or 2012. I've written like three triple X movies that I haven't got made. So I've been in and out of the franchise. <laughs> the last one, I think they were shooting before I ever heard that it was happening. But I've, you know, subsequently reconnected with with Vin and his sister. So I've been I've been, you know, back in and out of the fold uh, several times over the last 20 years. But that 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 still sticks in my head as one of the more fucked up things that can happen to a writer <laughs> that they uh, that they do that and not tell you, which is against the rules, by the way. Wow. That's a, that's a shame to hear, actually. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen the other two yet myself i i loved the first one and when i saw it wasn't vin diesel in the sequel i didn't go to see it and i would like to watch it fresh when we review those two films down the road but um i i, I haven't heard great things about them personally i'd be interested to see what your versions look like um i i vouch for triple x3 return of xander cage really really good film i mm -hmm. really enjoyed it donnie yen is in it got some incredible action dj caruso directed it is Great. I had, again, nothing to do with it. I saw it for the first time at the, at the premiere, which I was glad to get invited to because they didn't have to do that either. Mm. Okay, well, I think that probably wraps me up and that takes us out of the Xander zone when it comes to X. So <laughs> I, I kind of want to go back through your filmography a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Airheads. Sure. Because... It's a, it's a film I watched again today and I remembered how much I loved it. And my main question is, I think, is it your... Oh, so you had Stone Age first and then Airheads was your second film. You I, think, that, I think Airheads actually filmed first. But oh, yeah, okay. Well, in that case, it actually helps the question. For a first film, that's a hell of a cast. I know some of them were just getting started in Hollywood, but, you know, looking at it now in 30 years in the mirror, that's a hell of a cast you pulled together. Yeah, yeah, it was it was because of the we had the director of Michael Lehman of Heather's um, mm -hmm. and people were psyched uh, about him. Um, we started putting the, the cast together and, you know, we got 
Brendan Fraser at the beginning and Sandler and, you know, Mr. Pink to be, uh, to be the bass player. And once you got those guys, it's just a matter of who you round them out with. And Sandler's friendly with Farley. So we get to Farley to do something. And then Michael Lehman is friends with all of these, uh, these guys. So he's able to call up uh, uh, Harold Ramis to see if he wants to do it. And that leads to this guy and that guy. And so we had, you know, during the casting, you put up the headshots on the, the on the wall of the production uh, office. And I just kept walking by it going, this is unfucking real This is a, I, I still, to this day, I can't believe. And I got to sit in on the casting with that one. And we went through so many people to be the DJ. And I got to sit there with Malcolm McDowell comes in and he's reading for the DJ. And it just was endless. That and the character, the Michael McKean character, that was also, you know, uh, 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 Richard Lewis and, and Judd Nelson and uh, just an endless list of dudes that came in and Lehman let me sit there in casting, which was so valuable. Uh, it hasn't happened since, but really, really incredible experience. Um, it didn't do any money at all, unfortunately, uh, but it has lived on in, you know, 25 years later, whatever it is. Uh, and, and I still enjoy it. I watch it for the first time in like 15 years. Uh, when the 25th anniversary came up last year, I got interviewed on a podcast or something. And I was, I was surprised because I, I, I don't remember it fondly because it was a failure uh, commercially. And I, so I always think of it as a disappointment. But then I, you watch it with some, some more clear perspective. And you go, oh, shit, that, you know, you did okay for a 20 seven-year-old kid it's it's actually scripted pretty tightly and there's a lot of plot twists that that you know you got to give yourself credit for it, it, for me it, it works as a, as a fun film it's you know hour and a half basically it's what you want from a, a film at that time if i want to pop something on this is the sort of film i would pop on to entertain myself i don't want like deep spy films in, in an hour and a half i want you know yeah a bit of fun it's, it's, it's ultimately fun and that's what you want I think as the writer or any other person that's involved with the making of the movie, you're concentrating on different things than the normal viewer. I'm concentrating on what I wrote that's working rather than enjoying the hilarious performance by so-and-so or the editing or whatever else. So that's what was pleasing me, how I, how I uh, threw in these. So yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit bizarre when you get to it in the, in the, in, in the microcosm like that. It feels a little bit like a victim of timing almost where like it comes out in 94, but like had it come out maybe in like 96, you've got that Sandler boom and maybe it has a whole other reputation now, but maybe you don't assemble that cast in 96. So it's, yeah, it's kind of that. It was, what if. It, it's actually the opposite I, to me because hmm. we opened, let's say in August, that May was when Ace Ventura came out. And when Pet Detective came out, it changed the face of comedy. People did suddenly wanted, I mean, it was new. It was fucking crazy. It didn't look like it was going to work and it worked phenomenally well. And ours was more of a 80s style, you know, structured comedy with a, with a plot mm -hmm. rather than, you know, uh, uh, what's the name of it? I worked on it. Uh, Billy Madison. Billy Madison is a very loosely structured, it's just all about getting the laugh. And that was the sort of new wave of comedy that came in then. And we were right at the end of the old wave and sort of got steamrollered by the new stuff. Right, right. Well, as it was your first film that you 
worked on in a major Hollywood production. Do you have any sort of fond memories of being on set, working with the people or writing anything that sticks in your head? Because I imagine it's still quite vivid. Yeah, you know, this is what I, I learned. I always thought that you work on a movie, you're going to wind up buddies for life with these people. You know, it's like me and Sandler, me and... Fr and it really does not work out that way. <laughs> I always thought, you know, if you got to be in a movie with Jack Nicholson, next thing you're going to be playing poker at his house or, or whatever. I wound up not seeing any of those people ever again. And it's the same with Vin and it's the same with whatever. So that was the thing that I sort of took away from it, that it was a... That part was a letdown. It was a tremendous thrill to get the thing made and to go through that whole process. But on a personal level, it was like, oh man, I really thought I was going to be, you know, hanging out at backstage at SNL and having some laughs. And I don't know. I always got the negative perspective. Well, to be fair, this whole interview was a long con for you to put us in contact with Steve Buscemi. So you've, you've, you've upset <laughs> me now. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. The only thing I've taken away from this now is I'm really disappointed we never got to see uh, the Lone Rangers versus the Wild Stallions in a, in a band off. I just saw that movie last night, the uh, Face the Music. I loved mm. that. Did you say you worked on Billy Madison? Yeah, yeah. Right after Airheads, uh, Sandler did Billy Madison. And because I had written Airheads before they would green light it, they wanted me to come in and do a pass on the script. Um, so what I had basically done was they, they had ruined the margins, right? They had done everything too wide. And so when I put it in proper format, they had a 130 page script. So I had to cut out 25 pages of Billy Madison and give it some narrative structure. Um, for instance, I, I put in the O'Doyles as a recurring antagonist, this family of redheads that plagues him from first grade <laughs> to 12th grade. Uh, and I put in the, uh, the, the thing at the end, the uh, academic decathlon. It sort yeah. of ended with him graduating high school, but there was no competition toe to toe between him and the bad guy. So I put in the, the academic decathlon. Uh, there's a couple of little bits that I did. I, di you know, I didn't get any credit on it. I didn't deserve any credit on it, but there's some little bits that, that I like, uh, I don't know if you can see this. This is the, yeah. in the back. Yeah. <laughs> that was a scene that I came up with, uh, him talking to the shampoo and conditioner. So I'm proud that that was in there. And then the penguin, he existed at the beginning of the movie, but I brought him back at the end of the second act in you know uh, uh, his girlfriend's uh, apartment drinking cocktails and smoking cigars because it was such a great you know they had a, a, the stream of consciousness stream of consciousness thing going on and I had to give it some more you know structure so Penguin that was, coming back was satisfying. That was one of the most watched movies in my household uh, <laughs> through my young life so I know those bits very very well. Nice. I, it's still entirely baffling to me because it doesn't obey any of the rules. It makes zero logical sense from a writing point of view, and yet it works incredibly well. Just like, for instance, one of the things that I wanted to cut out, and I did cut it out, and they put it right back in, was uh, he, he accepts the deal from his father, Eric leaves, and he's left alone on the flight of stairs, and then suddenly he starts dancing the culture club. And I'm like, well, where is this music coming from? Who is he dancing for? Why is this fucking scene here? Cut. And then they put it right back in, you know, because after I did my draft, uh, Adam and Tim got to <laughs> go back over it and fix it. And it's a fantastic scene that just makes no sense at all. It's very, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Marx Brothers. It's just right. random, random as can be. 
Well, I'm really curious, you know, jumping off of, you know, Airheads and Billy Madison, those are two movies that are very irreverent and I think have, you know, really, they weren't necessarily, well, I mean, obviously um, Billy Madison was more successful than Airheads, but they both had a certain life to them. I'm just curious, you know, jumping into the Jerky Boys, which was an attempt to, you know, adapt this comedy act to the big screen, it didn't really connect as much. Do you have any idea maybe why it didn't translate as well as, you know, some of these other films? Scott, I thought we were cutting him off. <laughs> I've been trying for over a year to cut him off, and I still don't know how. <laughs> Unbelievable. Nobody remembers. Do, do, Scott, do you know who the Jerky Boys are? Do you ever hear of them? I, I think the only reference I know to the... It's like a, it's like a prank call thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, yeah. I, I think Arrested Development make a joke about an alternate <laughs> version of the Jerky Boys, and I think that's how it got in my head, but I yeah. don't know the Jerky Boys. Yeah, it's a very, very obscure uh, uh, series of comedy CDs from the mid-'90s that... We, we made a movie out of, uh, but it, this was an even more accelerated thing. My buddy got the director, Jim Melconian, director of The Stoned Age, got hired to write and direct the Jerky Boys movie in December. He called me up and said, listen, I have to start shooting in February. Can you come to New York and help me write this thing? So I show up on a Saturday and they say, uh, Roger Birnbaum's gonna be here next Saturday for a table reading. We have to write the script by next Saturday. So Jim and I bang out the script in a week. Meanwhile, he's doing location scouting and casting and all this shit already because they, this is January. They wanted it in theaters in August Oof. because they were convinced that this thing, you know, the, 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 the jerky boys fad was only gonna last till August and let's get the college kids right when they're going back to school. So we had to write the thing in a week. He had to shoot the thing really, really quickly. Amazingly, got uh, uh, Alan Arkin is the bad guy in it. He's phenomenal. He's got uh, two of the guys. I think uh, Big Pussy from uh, Sopranos is in it. Um, amazing, amazing cast. Uh, and uh, it came out really, really good for what we had to work with, which was, you know, write a script in, in six, seven days and, and then go shoot it. Um, but it was misguided in the sense that those guys are not actors, you know, the jerky boys. Johnny Brennan does amazing voices on Family Guy. He's phenomenal. Um, but nobody knows them as stage performers. He can act, but nobody knows them that way. It, it seemed like it should have been more of a jackass type movie. Mm, you know what yeah. I mean? Somehow, if you're going to do pranks in real life, but nobody had invented the jackass movies uh, back then. It was, right. it was too hard for us to figure out. Well, it felt like even at the time, like critics uh, really had no idea what to even make of it. Like they didn't really know what to measure it even against. So I yeah. think we know who the, uh, who the true jerky boy is in this chat right now. <laughs> Thanks, God. I, I, I put tape over his <laughs> Well, don't worry. I've, I've got the next question anyway. So it, this, is, this will be far more interesting because we're going to talk about punk like me. Which is, uh, yeah, I, I watched that um, right before I watched Triple X, actually. So I, I've spent an hour and a half with your face before talking to you this evening. So it, it, wow. it's, it's, it's strange to see. I, I do miss the green mohawk, I have to say. Yeah, me too. You know, I wish I could grow one, so that, to be fair. So you do know, I, you, yeah. <laughs> but um, for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's a documentary basically about you faking a band and going on the Warped Tour, which is such an insane concept, and yet you pulled it off and, and pulled off a great documentary as well. Well, thank you. It's actually one of the greatest documentary films ever made. I don't want to overhype it, but <laughs> I learned a lot from President Trump. Will you, if you tell people it's the greatest fucking thing that ever existed, 
then they're going to go, well, shit, maybe I should give it a try. The, 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 the problem that I've had with people with this movie is that I think the title gets misinterpreted. That punk like me doesn't mean that I'm a punk. It means that I'm a fake punk, right? It's based on the, it's a riff on the book, Black Like Me. You know this book? But it was a white journalist who decided to, this, to, to know what it felt like to be a black man in the South in the 50s. He pigmented his own skin, darkened himself, shaved his head, and then went hitchhiking, hitchhiking through the Deep South in the late 50s to write what it was like to be black like me. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the, the tongue and cheekness of the title. I'm not a punk at all, but I pretended to be a punk, got on the Warp Tour with this fake band, and we, uh, we got to tour the Midwest and just have these amazing adventures with no effects and bad religion and, and meeting all these crazy bands, uh, Avenged Sevenfold, and, and it was just ridiculous. Uh, possibly the greatest musical scam people on a bus with uh, family and kids and punk rock movie ever made, possibly. <laughs> How you managed to uh, to go on tour and yet still maintain your your family? That I mean, I, I would if I was wearing a hat, I'd tip it to you because I can imagine it's quite tough. Well, it, it was uh, my wife. She she has tremendous faith in me, but she never thought I'd be able to pull off the warp tour thing. So when I said I want to try to get on the warp tour, she was like, "Go, go yeah, go ahead. You have my permission." And then when it actually happened. And I was showing her the bus that I was going to rent, you know, for to go on the. She was like, "Whoa, that, that suddenly this is very, very real." So I had to bring her along, as you know, on uh, on the tour bus as our uh, our road manager. And then we had a newborn, and she got homesick, and so brought our eleven month old on the road. But she couldn't watch the kid all the time, so she invited my in laws to come on the road to watch the baby so that I could do the punk rock thing. So it's, it's sort of like having your teenage dream come true with all the stupid responsibilities of an adult. And it's also about being an adult who can't let go of that shit and has to make an ass of himself in front of his in-laws and, and God uh, to get it out of his system you know, before, before you drop dead, which I'm a big proponent of. It's, it's this, uh, uh, give it a try because you never know. You, know, you don't wanna be that guy. Well, I, I started doing stand-up comedy right before the the pandemic because I always right. thought, man, I'd love to do that. And I <clears throat> learned after doing it for a year that, man, there's no way I should be doing this, which is <laughs> a good thing to know. No regrets. Hey, you tried. Um, well, one thing that jumped out at me is I, I'm not a fan of punk music particularly. I was I'm a I was born in the late Damn, 80s. Can we was... shut him down? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What have we got? <laughs> oh, here we go. I was born in the late 80s. I was raised on Queen, status quo, and then I got into grunge and then new metal. That was kind of my rock genesis. So that's how it's been ever since. And my, my Spotify is still basically those bands. But I have to admit, even your fake punk band, the little uh, incidental music you have recorded and stuff, by the end, I was bobbing my head away to it. So even for a fake punk band, you, you had it going on. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, we, uh, I, I'd been playing in bands for my whole life. Um, the issue with this band was, and Cam, uh, since you don't, you didn't, since you didn't do your research, I'll explain it to you. The uh, <laughs> I had, I had a band that was going to go on the tour, but we broke up a month before the tour started. So I had to put together a brand new band, and I did that with two weeks to spare. So I went home, and over the weekend we wrote an album's worth of material. And then we had three rehearsals. And then the fourth time we played together was on the Warp Tour in Salt Lake City. So all of this stuff came out just 
because we had the time crunch of having to do it by Monday. Um, and so we picked, you know, various mariachi songs and whatever, uh, and just jammed them all together with, you know, sort of like Sublime did with reggae, we did with mariachi music. So if anything is coherent on there, I appreciate it that you enjoyed it. You can check it out on Spotify and Apple Music. The band is called Carne Asada. The album is Full Contact Mariachi. It is truly one of the greatest albums of mariachi punk rock you will see this week. Was it the philosophy a little bit like Spinal Tap where the music is funny, but it's also really good and catchy? Yeah, th uh, you're giving way too much credit. Um, <laughs> we, I don't think that uh, one of our guitar players didn't really play, you know, one of the guitar players was really good. The drummer is really good. The bass player is mm. really good. But two of us were absolute amateurs and I didn't know how to sing and I was the lead singer. It's... I guess I am maybe underselling it because the, the music really is fun and stupid uh, and, and super enjoyable. So uh, check out the movie, check out the Carne Asada album and uh, all the truths will be revealed. Well, I, I was actually going to say, check it out as well. Punk Like Me is on Amazon Prime at the moment, I believe, or at least it's on Amazon in some other places too. You can definitely rent it in some places as well, I think. Yeah, but it's so on no, Amazon, I, correct. Right. I did have another question though. If you were to run into a radio station and take it hostage to play a Carney Asada track, what track would you pick? Uh, it's going to be Donkey Show, because I think that shows the most versatility. Donkey Show is sort of a combination of a, it's a Ramones meets Mariachi. It's got a hey-ho, let's go uh, chorus, and it's a song about a guy falling in love with a, the donkey from the Donkey Show rather than mm. the, the young lady. Um, and I did actually run into a radio, not a radio station, but in Airheads at the beginning, uh, Brendan Fraser sneaks into the record company. I did that. I went to Capitol Records and burst into the lobby and ran into the elevator just wanting to do some research. Like, what is going to happen to me if I do try to get up there? And I got dragged out of the elevator and thrown out of the building. I didn't get as far as Brendan Fraser did, but that's the kind of fun stuff that you get to do. It's like, hey, you know, why don't I go get thrown out of this place? And maybe that'll add something to the, <laughs> to the script. Great. Why not? I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm, I'm, something's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm loopy all of a sudden. What'd you guys do? <laughs> it's all well, Cam. Blame him. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about The Dirt, which came out fairly recently, you know, a couple of years ago. And as you said, you, know, you were working on it for 17 years. Um, and I know it went through a lot of rewrites on the way to, you know, Netflix. But, um, you know, what was sort of, you know, what drew you to adapting that book, The Dirt, in the first place? If you read, the, I read, read a lot of band bios. They were, mm -hmm. they were my band in high school. I had a few bands, Van Halen and Ramones and Motley Crue. Um, and that, The Dirt is the best band bio I've ever read by far because they wrote it independently. Each chapter is written by a different member of the band and at the time they wrote it they were split up so they did not give a shit and so Vince will say you know what we did two albums in a row that were such pieces of shit it was embarrassing to go up and sing they had one good song on them each you never see that in a band bio it's always like well the inspiration for this and that and the they barely talk about the music in the book it's all about fucking and drugs and fist fights and crashing cars 
and it was so uh, incredibly honest that, that that's why I really, really, really wanted to do it. It was to deconstruct the band biopic. Um, by the time it got made, 17 years later, it had been rewritten a ton. All of those scripts had to be thrown out. And when it went to Netflix, it was my script again. But then they brought in uh, Amanda and she uh, rewrote it to, you know, fit the Netflix specifications. So it, it winds up uh, a pretty good uh, biopic. It relies a little too much on making them relatable and uh, uh, sympathetic more so than I would like, because I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're certainly fun guys, but the, they're, they're not necessarily great guys. So having that in a movie uh, is not exactly how I would have done it, but it makes it a very, very entertaining movie that, that people love. Uh, in my version, probably people would have shut it off halfway through and decided these guys are assholes. Why am I watching? Now, I'm curious, with a lot of biopics, they're focusing on an individual, even something like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's really the Freddie Mercury film. I'm just curious about, you know, basically taking on the four individuals and making the movie feel like you're getting good coverage of each character building towards, you know, an endpoint. That's something that most musical biopics don't do. Yeah, it had to be that way because of the way they wrote the book. And that gave you a really tremendous freedom to have different person narrating or talking to the camera at different points of the script, however you needed him to, to function. Uh, and it is a collective. There's really, you know, I mean, Nikki might write most of the, the music, but they've tried it without Vince, without Tommy. It just doesn't work when you get somebody else in there besides those four guys. So it's much, much, much better when it's the four of them. They each have their own foibles and weaknesses, and uh, it gives you a narrative device that you really haven't seen. That's what I really loved about it. Now, I have to give you a, a lot of credit for the Aussie scene. I'm a huge Aussie <laughs> fan. Yes. Uh, was, was there smoke coming off the pen as you were writing that sequence? Because it's yeah. incredible. It's, yeah, it's right from the book. You can hear those stories in, in a bunch of different books. But God, yeah, just to, to see that come to life, the, the way it was written uh, in the book. And I believe it, you know, it, it, coming through this drug haze of 30 years of hindsight, I totally buy it. Uh, uh, and yeah, that, that uh, David Lee Roth uh, sequence, I love. Uh, I, I love that whole world, the whole whiskey uh, sunset strip world in the 80s is just fascinating to me, whether it's comedy or it's rock and roll. Did it change your relationship with Motley Crue's music at all? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I did get sick of it for a while from just repetition, but now having you know, it's interesting when you get to meet a musician and ask them specifically, hey, I love this song, tell me, and you can ask whatever question you want about it. It gives you, a, a, it gives it a certain depth that you didn't have before. And so I do have a, a, a better relationship, I think, to the music now than I did before, because I've, I've analyzed it and listened to it endlessly during the writing period, uh, as well as having talked to the guys about it creatively. So. Yeah, you get sick of it for a while, but it's it's never going to go away. It's it's imprinted in there. If you ask Val Kilmer, he's still yeah, got the doors ringing <laughs> in his head. And how many times have you gone to see Motley Crue? Do you think in concert? Probably six. Okay. Starting in uh, 1983. Right. Yeah, twice in 1983. Now that I think about it. 
<laughs> now, are you still working on the Sam Kinison biopic? That one, uh, no. I mean, the script is written. We've been trying to get it made now for 13, 14 years. Um, if you have an idea for who we could cast to be a viable Sam Kinison that can bring in the money to uh, allow us to shoot it, that would be terrific. Uh, it's really a limited market on who you can get. And it's a very daunting character for somebody to try to play. He's so, you know, it's like trying to play Elvis or something. He's got such a unique look that you could look really foolish if you don't do it correctly. So um, the producer has been trying to get it made since 1995. So I'm sort of late on the bandwagon, but I'm hoping one day. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a world of streaming, I mean, it feels like there's gotta be at some point a door could open for that one. I would think so. It's, it, it's really the story of him if you don't know his story, he, he spent the first 10 years of his adulthood being an evangelical minister in these revival tents throughout the country. Uh, and then while he was on the road uh, uh, preaching, his wife cheated on him. And that's when he lost his faith in God and the church. Didn't lose his faith in God so much, but he lost his faith in the, faith in the church. Decided to become a stand-up comedian at like age 28 and then mastered it. And you know, most of his material is raging against the church. And so he had this very big chip on his shoulder about organized religion. And I think that's as relevant now as it was back then, if not more so. It really, really uh, is, is a great time in pop culture. You know, it's him and Tammy Faye Baker and, and, uh, and Jessica Hahn and all of this, uh, this cool stuff from the, from the 80s, which probably doesn't play over the pond, Scott. Yeah, this one flies over my head. I was just letting you two talk, actually. I have to say. But, but, but don't worry. I, I can see the vein popping out in your head that I know only Cam can cause. So I'm going to mm. swiftly jump back in here and, and, and attempt to bring us home, I think. Please. So one question I always like to ask when I have someone on, like a writer or a director, is could you tell the listeners something that is from your back catalogue that maybe isn't the triple X? It isn't potentially punk like me that you really like and you think more people should check out? Yeah, uh, it's a movie I wrote and directed a movie in 95 called Glory Days, uh, D-A-Z-E. And uh, I gave Ben Affleck his first starring role. So it's Ben Affleck, Sam Rockwell, uh, the cast is ridiculous. Matt Damon is in it and Matthew McConaughey and Brendan Fraser and Spalding Gray and Alyssa Milano. Uh, it's ridiculous how deep this bench is on this movie. And it was a little $700,000 $700, movie uh, about graduation weekend in college. It was sold to Miramax, completely fell through the cracks. It's the only place I've seen it available is on a service called Plex, which I think is a hmm. bootleg uh, viewing service. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know who owns it. I don't know anything uh, about it. But I, I saw that 20 years after having made it and really, really enjoyed that as well. It, we had done the festival circuit and all that kind of thing with it uh, back in the day. But yeah, that would be the one. Glory days. We'll see if we can find some links internationally and put them in the show notes. If people want to check it out, they can find it through there. And so they haven't got a search, basically. We'll do that too. We'll, we'll connect them to the film. Yeah, I'm sure it's on Pirate Bay, hopefully. Oh, well. Yeah, you can sail the seven seas, absolutely. It's what all spies apparently should do. But um, Speaking of spies, our final sort of wrap-up questions we'd like to throw our guests is about spy movies. So you did mention a couple of Roger Moore films, but the first question I always ask is, what is your favourite spy movie? It doesn't have to be a Bond. I'm talking the whole genre here. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go with a, 
with an offbeat pick, I'm going to take a military spy movie uh, called uh, The Eagle Has Landed. We actually Another just recorded that episode. We recorded that episode two days ago. Wow. Okay. Phenomenal movie, right? Because you wind up rooting for Michael Caine to kill Winston Churchill. And the entire movie being from the perspective of the Germans is phenomenal. I don't know how you could get that movie made now, but the sequence where the little boy or little girl falls into the water and the, and the soldier gets hung up on the, on the water wheel and gets the uniform stripped off. It's like he was doing the right thing. God damn it. Why do they have to fail? Uh, love that movie. Tremendous. It's a beautiful subversion, isn't it? Like it, that's the thing that struck me about it is it's strange. There's a couple of other films we've encountered in our time where you have like a Russian as, a, as your protagonist, yeah. where he's actually the bad guy or a German Nazi in this case. And he, Michael Caine is the perfect casting for that film because you can't not root for him, even when he's shooting my former prime minister. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't know how they they managed to pull that off. But even the casting, having him rather than, you know, uh, Jurgen Prugnow from Das Boot playing the guy. I mean, he's the he's the quintessential English gentleman, or at least that's what we think of the English gentleman in the States. Uh, English movie star. How about that? To have him play the I'll Nazi spy is, you know, is a great, great bit of casting. You were only supposed to abduct the bloody prime minister. <laughs> Something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but on to Bond. Now, you mentioned three Bond films and you mentioned a Bond. Is Roger Moore your Bond? Yeah, absolutely. When I think of the James Bond movies, it has to be those three. It's that late 70s era where it was a little more tongue in cheek. It was more travelogue. You had characters like Jaws be introduced. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, they were larger in life. Uh, th those are the ones that, that, you know, Austin Powers riffs on, even mm -hmm. maybe more so than, than the, I guess it's a combination of the Connery ones. But yeah, to me, that's what it is. I love the, the Daniel Craig ones. I thought when they did Skyfall that they were going to, they had set up everything to go back to the 1970s. He had Money Penny and he had M and, and I thought that's what was gonna happen, but they didn't wind up resetting. They went back to the sort of gnarly, you know, existential crisis bond. I'm not necessarily on board with that one myself personally. I, I like the Casino Royale and Skyfall, but Spectre's left me a bit cold, I have to say. Yes, yeah, I agree. So uh, yeah. What, what, are, what are your guys' favorite uh, Bond? Well, you might, Cam might be back on your side, actually, with this one. Yeah, I mean, I was, I grew up on Roger Moore. So I will always say, I think the best is Sean Connery, but my favorite is Roger Moore. I will probably over the course of my life revisit those Roger Moore ones, like The Spy Who Loved Me, Live and Let Die, more than I will the others. And I'm, I, as I said, a product of the very late 80s. So Pierce Brosnan, GoldenEye was my first Bond film. And so when I think of Bond, I think of Pierce Brosnan. But I know in my head, Sean Connery is like the best Bond. He's like the Fleming Bond. It's interesting, uh, Scott, because you gave two wrong answers in a row. Yeah, okay. <laughs> GoldenEye is not a good Bond movie. <laughs> it, may be, it may be the right answer to say Sean Connery is the quintessential Bond. And it's not the cool answer to say it's Roger Moore, but Cam and I are right. It is Roger Moore. I, I, I want to fight you about GoldenEye, but I, I, think we, uh, I think we'd be here for another hour and I think you completely glaze over by that point. I'll tell you what, the uh, GoldenEye video game, best Bond video game. Hands down. Hands oh, yeah. down. 
Yeah. Odd job is banned, of course. You can't play odd job in multiplayer. That's, that's cheating, and we all know it. I don't think I've seen Goldeneye more than once, so maybe I should go back and look at it. I think it's one that people enjoyed in 95, but they didn't really see a lot of value in it. And it's one that I think now people look a little more closely at. It's one of the last of the great classic Bond films. Is that the one that had the big radar dish that fell apart? It a year does, ago? yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Rich, I want to thank you for putting up with Cam mm. and, and for giving us Xander Cage. Oh, uh, yes. you, thank you, you. You've given us something to think about. You've given us a franchise uh, <laughs> you created. This is, this is your baby here. And we're, yeah. we, it's an absolute honor to speak to you about it. And uh, it's been a thrill for me, too. Yeah, oh, thanks. that's awesome. Thank you, Scott. Cam, do you have something nice to say? <laughs> no, I just want to echo back what Scott <laughs> said. It's, we love having, honestly, no. <laughs> it's always exciting to have the creators of a spy film. Whether it's one we like or not, it's always fascinating. Like, I just like the insight into the project. That is what I'm here for. And I, I enjoyed Triple X, so I'm not saying I didn't like Triple X, but I'm just saying in general, I like the insight. Yeah, Scott's doing the rap signal. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Wind it in, Cam. Wind it in. I, I, I can't wait to hear this to find out what you really think after the interview's over. And you go, wow, oh, man, okay, let's get back to it. No, I, I What really an asshole. Jesus Christ. I, I, mean, I appreciate you guys reaching out. It's, it's you know, you, you found a, a niche here. Uh, and I'm so happy that you're, you know, that uh, Eagle has landed is, you know, one of the movies that you guys are doing. It's phenomenal. I love this genre. Well, we might have to get you on for a film down the line. Yeah, but let, Rich. Me write, let me write one real quick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the last question I always wrap up with is, what have you got coming up? Uh, God only knows. You know, uh, there's NDAs. You can't talk about stuff. And then you talk about something, and it blows up, and you feel like a jackass. So uh, I'm not going to say anything. Except that life is grand. Message received. We're spies. We understand what you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Rich, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cam. Thank you, Scott. Take, Take care. Take care, mate. There you go, folks. That was Rich Wilkes on writing Triple X as well as his larger filmography. Cam, what did you think? Mm, yes, he's clearly a big fan of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm not used to people fawning over me this much. Uh, no, it was uh, fun to see that someone actually sides with you and just likes, uh, you know, trolling me sometimes. Well, it, it's interesting that it, it took him about 30 minutes to suss you out as the uh, repulsive human being that you are. So I, I appreciate his insight. Mm, sure, sure. Usually it takes people yeah. a lot less. <laughs> well, yeah. They just see you and walk away most of the time. Mm. Your, your Tinder is a bit of a shit show. <laughs> Plenty of fish, Scott. I haven't even upgraded to <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> What's an iPhone? <laughs> but, you know, we did speak a lot about his wider filmography, but we were here to speak about Triple X today, which was the main topic of conversation. And it was really interesting to hear, like you said at the beginning, Cam, a, a story concept taken from concept through to full script, no particular rewrites. We did talk about that one scene that was added in by the director and Vin Diesel. But, you know hearing the journey of this, this film was really interesting for me. Yeah, one of the really interesting things to me was just how much Fred Durst influenced this and the Limp Biscuit craze, which people may roll their eyes at the idea of Limp Biscuit now, but like back in the day, like that was a huge cultural moment. You know, you look at that whole new metal, you know, 
craze in the music industry. And like Limp Bizkit were right at the forefront. Everyone was listening to the song Nookie, um, Break Stuff. That album, I think at the time, was like the highest, the third album from Limp Bizkit was, I think, the third highest selling um, debut of like all time or something. It was like the number one for a rock band. It was absolutely crazy. And I never really thought about it at the time of seeing Triple X that this was a movie very much fueled by Limp Bizkit and Mission Impossible 2. But it's very clear when you actually hear that and then think about the actual final product. We're downloading the shockwave for all the ladies in the cave to get your groove on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you, you'll remember from the episode recently, I, one of the things I defended about this film is its soundtrack. It, I like nostalgia. There's nothing wrong with liking nostalgia. And I still listen to Lit Biscuit. I'm sorry if that makes me a bit of an idiot to some people. I don't care. Putting on this film, although there isn't any Lit Biscuit on the film, but you know, Ramstein's there, Drowning Pool. All bands I still listen to. So it for me, it has that sort of warm blanket nostalgia feeling when I watch this film. Yeah, I wonder if it would have been too on the nose to have a Limp Bizkit track even, given the fact that, you know, Mission Impossible 2 had uh, doubled down on the Biscuit. Well, they, did, they didn't give him a red hat and, and some baggy jeans. So mm. they didn't go that direction with the costume, at least. That's true. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about the conversation was, was Rich asking us. To be mm. fair, what we thought about the film is it was quite refreshing to have that sort of general open dialogue about a film. And, you know, he spoke about some of the things he didn't particularly like looking back on it, too. I think that's a really adult way of, of talking about one's work. And, you know, in retrospect, things you like, things you didn't like, it just means you've improved as, as a creator. And, I, and I, from that angle, I, I thank Rich again for his time. Yeah, it's something that is, I think, really helpful just to the dialogue of a movie to have the creator have those conversations. I really appreciate that. And I mean, as someone who does a podcast every week, Scott, you and I every week will put an episode and there's probably bits or pieces where you go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that or I don't like that part. It exists as a final product that people listen to, but you can always look back on kind of the kernels of things that maybe didn't you know, work out quite as well as you'd like. So I really appreciate that we could have that kind of conversation and actually by doing that, allow us to dig deeper into the movie than a lot of more superficial interviews would be able to do. Well, one thing we spoke about, our disappointments, and we we mentioned this on the episode as well, is just with the film's villain. Mm. And, you know, Rich was very open about what he wanted from it and what, you know, time constraints and, and weather constraints. They were filming in the middle of winter. Um, you know, just meant they couldn't do some of the things they wanted, which ultimately was a detriment to the character. And which had an impact on the film and maybe an impact on what we thought of it, you know, looking back on it now. But I think the strength of, of, of triple X comes from Vin Diesel and it comes from the, the fun story it actually lays out. So that, it was interesting digging into how that story was put together. And I was actually quite interested in talking about the, the really fast conception of it, which is something that I found entirely bizarre. I, I'm used to talking to these screenwriters about, Hey, they pitched an idea, they waited six months, then they did a pass at the script, and then another six months went by. Whereas this film was done in 18 months. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that I think we tend to make judgment calls when a movie is rushed through production. And on the same track, we are also very uh, judgmental when a movie drags its butt getting to the screen. You know, you look at No Time to Die, which went through director changes, rewrites, a lot of eyebrows went up. Um, I remember X-Men First Class when that movie was going through production. It was a just, I think it was an 11-month production, basically. Like, they raced that one from beginning to end when once Matthew Vaughn agreed to do it. And it's my favorite X-Men movie. So 
speed doesn't really have any sort of qualitative um, impact on the movie. It's really just, are the right people attached? Does the product deliver? And you can see a movie that can take forever through production and be really rocky, and it turns out to be a classic. Wizard of Oz was something of a disaster through production. Jaws. So it just seems like, you know, Triple X, while it was on the fast track, it fell at that perfect zeitgeisty moment. You're coming off the success of Fast and the Furious. And I think one thing that Triple X really gets right, and something that we didn't bring up in the interview, it nails the Vin Diesel persona. And that's something that many years down the road, almost, you know, two decades later, we all understand the Vin Diesel persona. We've seen it through many Fast movies, as well as, you know, he did the um, the third Triple X movie a handful of years ago. He still brings that persona to movies like Bloodshot and some of the other action films he does. But this was fairly early on. You know, he had done Pitch Black, a movie I really enjoyed, and he had done the first Fast and Furious. But this movie... You would almost swear this was like the 10th Vin Diesel film that understood his action persona. And yet it's one that's very much laying the groundwork for the decades to come. I really wish I could do a good Vin Diesel accent to try and take a punt at some of his lines, but I just can't manage it. Who can? It's only Vin Diesel. Yeah, yeah, he is the group guy after all. It makes sense. The only other thing I want to call out when it comes to sort of the triple X side of the interview was just that, you know, Rich pointed out that I am once again an idiot because it took me three viewings of this film to notice the James Bond thing right at the start of the film. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised he didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, I asked him in earnest, you know, is that a, an obvious thing you put in? He goes, well, he was wearing a tuxedo. And I'm like, da doy. Like, come on, Scott. <laughs> Jeez. Well, you're so distracted by the Rammstein performance. I don't blame you. Didn't they use some of that in one of their videos? Well, they do it live as well. Like, all the things you're seeing in that sequence where the flamethrower's on the face, the fire ever, that's their stage show. No, I know. I've, I've seen them. But I just mean, I swear some of, like, the setting where they filmed that was in one of their music videos. I might be going crazy. Oh. Okay, so they put out a video for that, um, for that particular song, Fire Fry, and they used a lot of triple X footage and probably performance footage from this movie. So I don't know what the final director credit is on that Rammstein video, but it may even be credited to Rob Cohen. I'm not sure. I'll have to check that out. I, I think it might be actually that that is the case. But um, some of the other things we spoke about in the interview, of course, one of them was Airheads, which is a film I revisited today for this interview. And I recommend people actually seek out. I think it's a really fun little hour and a half comedy with a stellar cast that you know that was his first film that he you know wrote and turned to an actual Hollywood production and you know what a cast yeah no kidding I remember actually watching this one back in the day I didn't see it in theaters I was swayed by I guess reviews or something or maybe just the you know the box office for it wasn't very good but I remember renting it later down the road and actually really enjoying it and being surprised that it didn't have more of a positive response if not by Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel so much as maybe like you'd think younger people would have gone out to see it that did surprise me when I finally saw it mm. and the other thing I, I, I brought up was the Punk Like Me documentary which I would also insist people go and check out because just for hearing about the story of someone infiltrating the Warped Tour successfully that's that's crazy if you like music you know and if you're a musician as well you know how hard it is to play in a band it's not an easy thing you can just pick up and you know by the end of that documentary, they sounded pretty good. Although, to be fair, Scott, you've tried to infiltrate a number of folk festivals to uh, no avail. Well, the problem is I just sit in the corner playing guitar and people just start playing hacky sack with me and it just gets very confusing. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I was really interested just in terms of his musical connections, talking about that as well as The Dirt, which I think would have been really challenging. It's one of those projects when you look at a lot of musical biopics out there, whether it's Ray, whether it's Walk the Line, whether it's Bohemian Rhapsody, they are just in terms of concepts so much more focused on an individual. Um, Walk the Line kind of jumps between two characters, but they're fairly focused, whereas there is nothing focused about the guys in Motley Crue. <laughs> and so the idea of trying to assemble that into a film that pleases a Netflix audience, which is essentially everyone, you know, anyone mm. who's tuning in, um, I thought was just a really interesting challenge. And I really enjoyed hearing him talk about actually making that happen. I didn't mention this in the interview because I didn't want to feel Rich's wrath, but he might be listening to this. So hi, Rich. I don't think I could name a Motley Crue song. Uh, Dr. Feelgood? Pass. No, girls, girls, girls. I, I mean, I like them, but no, I don't know what the song is. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot of Motley Crue, but there are a certain number of songs that get played on the rock stations here a lot. They were never of those 80s metal bands, uh, one that I went back to a lot. I was more of like Ozzy, Metallica, Same. Um, some of those types of bands, Alice Cooper. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was the only thing that jumped out to me as well. You can tell Rich has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in music at the time. Even though he didn't necessarily come up with some of the soundtrack for Triple X, the film itself is built a little bit around that soundtrack. And, you know, he didn't have elements in the script. He obviously wrote the lyrics in one of the songs into the script because he wanted that featured in, in the film. And, you know, he did the, the punk documentary. And, and, you know, going back to Airheads, um, in Glory Days, which we spoke about at the end, he actually recorded a song with Sam Rockwell that's on the, the soundtrack to that as well. Like, the guy likes music, and that comes through in his films. I'd like to think Sam Rockwell dances to that song regularly, and, you know, everyone knows how awesome Sam Rockwell is at dancing. You can find YouTube compilations. Yeah, I just pictured the Charlie's Angel scene. Yeah. Which is probably peak Rockwell for dancing. Yeah, it's up there. But again, we just want to thank Rich for coming in and giving us some insight into the Triple X franchise. We're obviously going to be tackling the second film, State of the Union, and then the third film, The Return of Xander Cage, in a few months' time, so we'll get to those soon. But, I mean, this is really the groundwork of the X Xander Cage character, and, and Rich is the guy who created it. I, I couldn't ask for a better interview. Yeah, for sure. It was a lot of fun. But, Cam, what have we got coming up next week? Well, we were just a few minutes ago talking about 80s music. We are going to tackle an 80s movie. We are going to the year 1988 to tackle the Sidney Poitier spy thriller, Little Nikita. This is one of those ones where I've heard the name, but I don't know the film. So this is going to be one of those, like the mystique behind the film, getting into it. I'm looking forward to checking it out. I mean, I'd heard of La Femme Nikita, but I'm not really familiar with Little Nikita. So this is news to me. I might be confounding the two, to be fair. Yeah. Um, again, this one's kind of a mystery pick. And so that makes it that much more exciting for me to dive into it. Because when I'm tackling you know, a major franchise movie or just a big blockbuster movie, I kind of know what I'm returning to. Whereas mm. in this case, who knows, folks? The sky's the limit. It, it could be a gotcha. It could be a true lies. You never know, really. Exactly. Yeah. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Little Nikita and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But... Until next week, listeners, I live for this shit. <laughs>